You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. I ask Q and say, you're the Q, these guys are the A. <laughs> Uh, if anybody has a um, comment or a question, we will entertain it at this moment. Ah, so this is like a freshman class in physics. Just need the first, just one of you needs to do and it, and the rest of you will fall like dominoes. There There's a brave man in the back row. <laughs> Hello. Ken, I've read your earlier stuff and I, I love it a lot. How did you switch from that like epic fantasy to kind of what you were reading tonight? Well, I I didn't. The question being, you know, the the seeming difference between these current books. Um, actually, though, to be fair to myself, I've, I've always thought of myself as being more like a lot of my favorite writers growing up, who are people like Sturgeon, Zelazny, Bradbury, Ursula Le Guin, um, people who never really differentiated much between whether they were writing quote-unquote fantasy or science fiction or whatever. They, they wrote the story that they wanted to write. The difference with me is that I seem to have developed the bad habit of, of writing million word epic <laughs> things. And so as a result, if it takes you five to seven years to finish something like that, obviously there's an entire generation that's grown up and like, well, that's what he writes, you know? And then when you change direction, they kind of look at you in horror. But for me, it's just a very slow turn, kind of like an ocean liner, you know? I'm, I actually weave back and forth when you can get far enough away to see the pattern. But previously, I've been weaving rather slowly. That was pretty good. That was a very good question. There are, there are no bad questions, by the way. At least, oh, at least so we think. You've never been here before. But I was, no, was going to say, I, I'm, I'm willing to be proven wrong. Well, I, I, go ahead. I had a question, which I think uh, you sort of raised. I mean, when we talk about epic fantasy, I, uh, I think all three of our authors write epic fantasy. I don't think that's what any of them actually chose, uh, except maybe Ken. <laughs> really, I, I'm writing science fiction dressed up as fantasy. Yeah. So. Well, uh, so what makes, I mean, one thing that makes epic fantasy is it's more than one book. It's mm -hmm. it's it's magnitude. It's geography. It's, uh, you know, it takes in the curvature of the narrative. And, uh, uh, but are there any, is there any other distinction? I mean, you've all three written what is certainly called epic fantasy. What, it, it seems to me that there are certain parameters and constraints and and uh, rhetorical styles and stuff that go with that. I mean, uh, what do you think, Andrew? Um, I was, you know, as you were saying it, I was thinking about, like, what would, if anything that makes my stuff epic, it's that it, it, it deals with family history, right? It deals with, it's like the history, the, the bounds of the story, the, st the, the events are outside the bounds of the story. Like, the villain's motivation comes from something that happened before the book begins. The paragons, which are the previous Hero, the, the team of heroes when the book opens have all this back history and, and that is sort of like the epic to me is what exists outside of the boundary of the narrative that you're telling. Well that's an interesting way to look at it, yeah. Ken? I, um, you know, I, I read a lot of epic fantasy and then w when I sat down with the Psalms of Isaac I knew that I was telling, I mean, it, it, we have robots. I mean, it's, it, to me I was always, I was very surprised at the reviewers who said, well how did this science fiction get in my fantasy? Well it was <laughs> there from the first couple of chapters um, and so you know I wanted to take the tropes that, that I was familiar with as a kid you know the dashing prince the beautiful deadly courtesan assassin the orphan boy the wizened hidden king you know all of these things that I had kind of grown up reading about and I wanted to try and dress them up as as a science fiction I wanted to I wanted to dress a science fiction story which is actually fantasy anyway, because if you go with Bradbury's definition, the idea that you know all of my science in my science fiction is fantastic, um, not in a get an A in class sort of way. Um, and I wanted to take those characters and I wanted to throw them into a post-apocalyptic, distant, distant future humanity at the edge of its you know last breath, and play it out. I mean, I always thought of it more as an otherworldly biblical epic with an entirely new framework of mythology, but. You know, that's also, I think, a type of epic fantasy. So, I, I think that one of the things that, basically the first word you have to look at is epic. 
and and the very nature of an epic is that it usually deals with with larger than life persona but it also deals with and this is really the true i think the true uh you know lodestone of of epic it deals with larger than life events almost entirely in my mind that things that are epic mean that literally that the world or or civilization or a, a, a large you know a, a something that is important to the reader or, or even if they're only imagining that they were there um, is at risk so you know epic by its very nature tends not to be the kind of, of small story about the survival of a single character those can be picaresques or they can be you know but but you know epic tends to mean lots of characters big scope and very serious events and i i think one of the reasons that 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 those things are successful if you look at it they're actually successful outside of fantasy and science fiction i mean james michener made his his living doing stuff like that james clavel or clavel i've never known how that was pronounced um the guy who wrote Shogun. Okay. So anyway, I mean, all these these are these are people who write these kind of things, and they're they're incredibly, um, you know, I mean, the, the Herman Wouk's you know book about the Second World War. I mean, these are the kind of things that people like in part because it is a way to experience these kind of world changing issues without actually having to live through them, which is never as nice as reading about them. So yeah, there was a. There's a piece in the New Yorker now about Hilary Mantel, you mm. know, who wrote the um, Wolf Hall, right. and she said um, at one point she said you can only have great characters in great times because the same character in a time that wasn't a, a hinge time uh, is never called to greatness. So I, I think that epic fantasy uh, that's sort of how you you make it you 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 size your characters with your Events. Well, I, I think yeah. that's actually very good observation because if you think about something like uh, another epic, again, outside our field, like Gone with the Wind, if you take away the setting of the Civil War, um, then all of a sudden Scarlet's petty stuff is really all that matters because she's just an irritating bitch, you know. Um, <laughs> but, but when you see her in the sense of kind of rallying her family and preserving the family property at a time when their way of life is passing away and all that stuff, um, then it ha then it has significance, in a, you know, beyond the mere fact of the characters, and has significance for the readers as well. That's sort of a, I mean, it sort of becomes a crucible, right? Like it, it, it you know, I, I, and I mean, I, gu I guess that you know, it's funny. I didn't set my story in England. I said in, in in New York, but like it just, but it's shortly after the Civil War, which I think was one of those periods, right, where everybody who came out of it had been sort of purified by that experience, right? I mean. Are you talking about your book? Yeah, yeah, the, yeah, in my book. But also the UK. I mean, my mother was, like, my mother had lived through World War II, and, like, you know, that the stories you get from that are about how people act. How, how do you maintain civilization in an uncivilized time? Well, now, let me ask you this uh, for Andrew, but also for everybody. Uh, in I mean, you, you've placed your pivot foot in steampunk, and also, as well as Throw it right in there. And <laughs> Shut um, down the gears. What... Uh, what is steampunk? Is it a form of historical fiction or historical? Is, I don't think I've ever been asked that question before. No, that's not true. Um, <laughs> I mean, we know it. It, it has certain so outfits. We know it has costumes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I so I define it. I mean, I define it as Victorian era fantasy. Like, like for me, it's like that's a simple. That's my elevator pitch. It's it's absolutely wrong in almost every material way. But like for me, like if somebody needs a thirty second, if I need to tell one of my mother's friends right. what it is, that's what I say. Victorian era fantasy. It doesn't really fall under fantasy for me because. Um, I think if you look at the structure of the stories, it's a lot more like sci-fi because it's about the technology and about how the characters are, like it's about how the technologies that are discovering are changing that world. It's not as much, although my book does flip a little bit, it's not as much about the metaphors and the way that, you know, a dragon is a metaphor for something, right? A unicorn is clearly a metaphor for something that's on the front of its head. And, um, <laughs> and you know, that, but how the characters relate to that and what the meaning of that and the depth is, that's what those stories are about. Steampunk is really about Steve, the fun about the Victorian era stuff, and I think why people connect to it, is because we live in it. We, it's a simpler version of the era that we live in, and so it's fun to tell stories in there. Where I was, I was just um, talking about this earlier. You know, if you go to the, uh, the best thing I can tell people to do is go walk the Brooklyn Bridge, because when you walk across the Brooklyn Bridge, what you realize is the design of that was to showcase the, the engineering. Everything that's built there is like we're doing such cool stuff, like. 
And, and we want everybody to know it, and it looks like a textbook. Like, it's all deconstructed. Every you know, vector of force is exposed. And I think that, that's the fun of steampunk, is, is, is exposing that history. I, I agree, and I, I, if you don't mind, so I, I don't mean to, to, to poach on anybody's preserve. I would even expand the definition of steampunk slightly. I don't think it's just that it's about the 19th century or the Victorian era. I think it's about, uh, steampunk is post-industrial fantasy, I think, in the sense that mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's about machinery and the effects of machinery on the world that we saw starting like with the age of steam in Europe and things like that. So it's, it, because it, obviously it, it, it does, Really, what steampunk most has in what steampunk is most common to or similar to to me is actually stuff like uh, like Gibson and Sterling's cyberpunk because, as Andrew said, it's about a fascination with technology. I mean, talk about porn, boy! If you read, you know, you read cyberpunk, and I mean that stuff is all equipment porn. It's all you know about matte black, you know, and everything is perfectly this and that, and even the things that are all gummed up and icky looking are gummed up and icky looking in a really cool way you know and to an extent that's true with with steampunk as well it's you know people like rust and rivets and that's one I, of the I, things i had the, i when i was in i have some pictures i should pull them out but, but the uh, i was in i was in uh this town called omaru in new zealand which is the home of steampunk they've titled it now um and they pulled a bunch of old they had thrown when the back like in the 1880s they had thrown all these old train cars into the into the ocean to, to form a seawall and at some point, people realized having a bunch of rusting old cars in there was a bad seawall. <laughs> so they pulled them all back out again, and you know, and and they're gorgeous. I mean, it's just rusted, pitted. You know, it's been there for hundred years of under, and it's just gorgeous. I took a like I took a hundred pictures of it, and that is you know, it's part of the steampunk thing, right? Is that sort of organic, that weird aesthetic of organic, polished, handcrafted, riveted. You know, you can see every action that's been taken. Right. On. Whereas epic fantasy tends to harken back to the pre-industrial. In general, I mean, obviously, it's a very broad term, but in in general, it harkens back to the pre-industrial. Yeah, I think I think that's. Uh, I wouldn't call steampunk post-industrial as much as industrial. Well, yeah, I yeah. just mean yeah, I mean post-age yeah. of steam, kind yeah. of whatever. Yeah. Post-factory. Yeah. Back in the back. Yeah. Um. So there's a lot of talk about epic, and like each one of these books could be described as epic, but the only definitions that we've got is sort of pointing to the idea as to what epic is versus what epic is not is, you know, epic is narrative which predates itself, has larger-than-life components, and offers to a world, and it's multiple books. So by that definition, Harry Potter's epic? I mean, what oh, is yeah. epic? Like? I would say Harry Potter definitely qualifies as epic fantasy. I, I, I don't know if I can get in on the royalty stream that <laughs> way, but I would definitely put us in the same ballpark, at least as writers, yeah. Uh, I don't, what are you going to Yeah. I think but I think noir. I don't think I don't think noir is. I don't think. Well, I mean, I, you're doing a sort of epic noir, and you can. But I think I think that the noir itself is like sort of anti-epic. It's about small characters making single decisions. I think samurai movies probably for the most. Well, that's actually probably wrong. But like anything that doesn't have a huge battle sequence or really hinges on a character's decision is probably not going to be epic. <coughs> I think almost. Well, one of the definitions of epic is almost always that the the events are very large. So if the events that are happening are not large, then that's one of the ways you can say it's not epic. In other words, no matter how important it is to the character and how they, in the main characters, and how they struggle to get through it, if the event itself is not larger than life, then it's probably not what, what you would call an epic. So, for instance, um, I'm trying to think of an example. I'm I think it's something like, you know, in science fiction, but think of an obvious one like Ender's Game. Um, that turns into epic at the end, but up until that point, it's not because it's all very. Fu Everybody here read Ender's Game. Am I going to give anything away if I spoil this? <laughs> well, you'll see the movie next year. It's yeah, okay. that, that you know, the, the whole early part of it is very much about these particular characters, and it's very small, and the outside world exists only as a, a backdrop, as a scrim. And it's only at the end, when you find out what they've really done to Ender, that it turns into an epic. But it's still not a true epic, because to me, a true epic, you have to know the scope to begin with. So that's one. Yeah, the stakes. The stakes mm -hmm. really. De the stakes define a lot of it. Yeah. Well, uh, like Harry Potter, you know, it could just be a story of a kid coming of age, except the stakes were high. Yeah. You know. So the stakes, uh, the the stakes exist for the entire world along the Oh, can, so I, can I can I just quickly say? Yeah, yeah. By the way. One of my and I and I think J.K. Rowling is is fine and a good writer and I have no problems at all with the success of the Harry Potter books. 
as a writer, as another writer, though, I was mildly irritated occasionally because I thought the one place where she did fall down was in the fact of that the, the, the attempt to combine the epic with the day-to-day the -day didn't work for me as well as it could because I kept asking things like, okay, wait a minute, so wizards are the most powerful people in the world and they're keeping all the forces of darkness at bay and they're doing all these incredibly important things the rest of us can't do, and yet everything seems to be hovering around this, like, private school with no security people wander in and out you know it's like you can take over it by by you know framing one guy and all of a sudden you're in charge or whatever and for me not that I didn't enjoy them but as a as a writer of epics that's where it fell down for me I said I'm sorry I don't believe that if that is the nexus of power for the entire world that it's so freaking casual you know about spells just lying around you know nobody's bothered to find out what the history is of the guy who threatens the world, you know. Have you ever worked in government? Yeah, well. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think even I don't think even that the 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 American Pentagon at its worst is quite as porous as Hogwarts, but that's just <laughs> that's just my own prejudice maybe. Please. One of the issues with epic fantasies I've noticed is that when you start out the books, you've got like your small nexus of characters, then as you go out and the camera pans outwards, it seems like you lose that group in like the grand scheme of the world. Like if you look at Prince of Robert Jordan's books, in the first few there's like three characters who you're following. By the last one there's a, like a menagerie of 45 people whose life stories you need to pay epic attention to because <laughs> they all involve the entirety of the, the, the plot. How do you keep your characters important enough for the reader to care about when you have the gigantic kind of world-changing plots to deal with? I just, I choose not to go there. I end up, um, I started my series with four point of view characters. I, I have a few tertiary characters who show up on stage. Um, I felt like it was a lot to ask of my reader to keep up with all of the names and all of the stories. So I, I, so, so I had this other scheme. My scheme was, I'll stick with these four. Then of course, after I wrote the first book, I realized, no, there are six. Um, <laughs> And you know, and the gradually smaller, you know, more and more characters. Adam Marta that I, I just read about here came in to the fourth book. I didn't know who she was. She showed up, knocked on the door, and said, "Hey, I want to be in your book." Okay, um, but I'm trying really hard to stay with this small group. You know, about six characters that I'm following, and then I had this brilliant idea: spinoff novels, um, <laughs> where I could like take these other tertiary characters who walk on stage here or there, or we see them. Why not go back and write a fill-in novel of what they were up to? So I drop little hints, you know, throughout the series so that someday when I'm tired and want to go back and spend more time in that world, I can go back and bring them out and take three of them and say, oh, here's another novel that's set during the same time as the Psalms of Isaac. What a, what a clever notion. Um, but I try really hard to limit because <clears throat> I, I, I get frustrated and, well, I get lost. I mean, it's like trying to follow, you know, the begats and, what you know, one of the... the fun Deuteronomy books. Um, yeah, yeah, what, well, who the fuck is this? Um, where did they come from? How did they become so I important? think it's who the fuck begat who. who yes, exactly. <laughs> so, so I try really hard to dial it who down. Who begat you? I, I, I don't know what these other guys do. Well, it, it's, I, I will actually coin a, a term here that I don't know if anybody's ever used before, but um, what, what you're discovering, and Andrew's probably already discovered or is discovering, and what even George Martin is now discovering <laughs> is what I, what I will term epic creep. Yeah. And, and what happens, of course, when you're trying to tell a really large story is that inevitably you keep stumbling onto characters. It's not so much that you need those characters to tell the story so much as that you get interested in them as characters. Yeah, yeah. And over the course of a long book, when a new character comes along who really lights your fire, you know, you need to keep yourself interested in the story. Uh, there is no, I mean, I can only speak for myself. I want to hear what Andrew says, but I, I don't have a single method that I use to try and stay focused. But what I do try to do is start the book with protagonists who are going to be able to grow during the course of the story and change and move around and have enough useful experiences. And I mean useful here in the sense purely from a utilitarian writer's point of view. Useful to me as the poor bastard trying to make all this stuff go forward, you know. 
um, that they will have enough useful experiences and will change enough during the course of the story. That's one of the reasons it's interesting sometimes to use uh, young protagonists or younger protagonists because they are still uh, people in, in building. They are people you know, who are becoming and you can make part of the story be about that. And then a lot of your secondary characters and other characters can be the people who are, who are influencing them and changing them and expanding them. That's the only kind of rule that I know of to help with, with that particular kind of creeping. And they last longer, too. Yeah, I mean, that too. Yeah. 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 I, mean, I, I, I would say there's a couple things. One is, like, I use, I mean, my guide, my, my, some of my favorite epic stuff really comes out of anime, which is, you know, they can run for 50, 60 episodes. And they, you know, I, I mean, the one, the one thing I think I tried to take from that is, is, uh, is that you want, that they have to be, there has to be moments of decision that fall heavily on the character's shoulder so that there's a reason, that the crux of that moment of change occurs with the character making a decision, not them just showing up and having to swing a sword harder than anyone else. And the other thing I'd say that really helps is body count. Like if you can, you know, like, you know, just, you know, I mean, and, and, and you know, I, I'm definitely from the Joss Whedon slash anime school of character death. Like, you know, it, I, it, you know and, and I mean, the fun part, right, is to take out that character that nobody thought you were gonna take out because, you know, I mean, you can't take out the lead necessarily. At some point you have to figure out, I mean, George Martin does that to the point where I think that, I, I think to the point, you saw it with it, it's really interesting to see, it's really interesting to me watch a mainstream audience react to that now because they're so unused to that. Yeah. And even Whedon gets, he, Whedon gets bumped from that. What? Who doesn't? Any of his characters? Oh, Sean Bean, right? Yeah, but 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 um, but yeah, exactly. Well, that right, that was that you could see coming, but there, you know, there's more. There's, it's not over yet. But the the you know, so yeah, you have to be careful with that. I think with body count, you because you don't want to you don't want to disempower the main character. You want to use death as a way to to do that. And I think one thing with Martin, for instance, I never know. You don't know who the story's really about even four or five books in. Well, and but and again, this is also to my mind. Now I know George, and 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 I've talked to him about some of this stuff. Um, and he is one of my favorite writers. I'm just I'm thrilled with, with what's happened for him. And, but I think, and I'm guessing this, this but I, I think that to a large extent, even George has kind of been surprised by, you know, I mean, obviously the, the fact that the lane length has changed several times and all of that. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. It's epic creep. You don't start, I didn't set out to write four, um, four book trilogies, of which I've now written three. But, you know, I always thought each one of them was going to be maybe one volume, maybe three at the most, you know, you have to, and that's with me keeping a really tight rein on things. So it, it is very, very difficult. And you have to be able as a writer to step back and try and see the shape of what you're doing. And that may be the biggest difference between good writers of say ep epic fiction of any kind um, and uh, the kind of journeymen or also ran types is that the good ones to me seem to be able to step back and say, even though this is much longer than a normal work of art or fiction, it still has to have that shape. It still has to have that rhythm. And all of those moments have to come at the right times. There just have to be about 50 times more of them. So you have to be able to step back and get that perspective on how your story moves and look viewed as a whole what the shape of it is. And that's one of the difficult things about writing did, an open-ended. Did for both of you guys, did, I mean, because this happened to me, like somewhere in book two, I realized although the shape was going to be the same, it wasn't like something else caught my attention and, the, and it shifted and it was better for it. Right? I mean, did that happen to, to you? I've had a weird experience with all of this because I came into it and I, my writing friends all think that I'm whack. But I start out with what size of bucket is my story going to go into? And then I create the story to fit the bucket. And I think I took it out of a screenwriting book or something. You know, you got two hours for a movie or however it worked. But when I, I sat down with the Psalms of Isaac, when I finally committed to writing it as novels, which took forever for me to commit to, um, I thought when I wrote Lamentation I'd have a trilogy. By the time I was done, I knew I should just say five books. Tell Tor it's five books. It'll be five books. And and so I'm I'm fitting my story into that bucket with the idea that if there's more story... Wait a minute, you just said you just expanded the bucket. I mean, that's... <laughs> that. Well, I did, but, I, but this is before I went to Tor. Um, so Tor only story, heard about five books. You just expanded the bucket. Yeah. yeah, I did. I built. What I did is I knew that the bucket could get bigger and if I played with it, but I didn't want it to become seven books or ten books or twelve books. My thought was that a lot of people are kind of tired of these never-ending series, and 
They want to know. So people have been asking, well, how many books? Five books. It's five books. Even if the last book comes out in five parts, it's five <laughs> books. Um, you know that one, don't you? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, wait, yeah, that's Sorry, Chad. Uh, all right. Okay, but no, but I mean, no, I agree with that. And that's, that is, as I, I was trying to say earlier, um, uh, but I think it may have been when I was talking to Rick and doing a little interview thing. Um, for me, there's a big difference between open-ended storytelling and telling a single story, albeit hideously long. And my, my epics, um, all three of them so far, the ones that I consider to be the kind of that classic type, um, are all what I thought of as single stories. I outlined them as single stories. I didn't quite know exactly how long they'd be. But, I mean, I did, as you said, I meant them all to fit in a single bucket because, for me, when I'm writing the first volume of a three- or four-volume work, I want to be able to foreshadow mm -hmm. just as effectively as if I was going to end it in in that one volume. But of course, the difference being, and I've said this lots of times, that when you're writing multiple volumes, by the time you're writing the last book and you realized you screwed up mightily and you should not have killed off that character, <laughs> um, you've already published that book. Yeah. Yeah. And as I always say, short of going door to door with a red pen and asking for it back, you know, can I fix that where it says dead and just put breathing shallowly? Thank you. You know, there's not a lot. There's not a lot you can do. So you must plan ahead. You must have some idea of the full arc of the story, even though you know it could be anywhere from 1,500 to 2,500 pages. I think for me, like one thing I ended up doing, like if thinking about it now, because there was a moment at which it was teetering on five books, and I was like, I, I'd written this. I'd written originally planned it as two. And then I, I, remember, I remember exactly, I was on the road on my cell phone and I called Lou and I'm like, can it be three? And he's like, sure. So, um, and you know, and then it started to expand. But I always was writing, but the thing is, it's, the big beats were always there. I knew where the mm -hmm. book was gonna end. I knew what the final battle was gonna be. Mm -hmm. um, and then you try to write to that, but you keep discovering more story in those cracks, right? It keeps mm -hmm. expanding. And then you're like, well, I could just have one more action sequence. Um, but at some point I, I got, I, the earlier this year, the reason this book, the book, when I signed up for this, it was my book, book three was supposed to be out. And I was about 60K into book three, and I realized, like, these characters were nowhere near getting to where the ending was, and I had to go back and rebuild the story to get, but, you know, and that you can do, right? Like, I, I mean, I end up having to chop out about 30,000 words, but it, I knew I wanted, I wanted to get to the ending more than I wanted to tell the other, the other story, because I wanted it to, and I wanted it to compress, because I wanted that, that pacing. So I pushed back into that. Well, it was rough. What, what Andrew and Ken and, uh, were, were joking about with me is I'm fairly famous for the fact that I, <laughs> I, 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 I've done this a few times, but especially the first time. I wrote the first two books of a trilogy, and then my metaphor for it was is like I, in the first book, uh, you know, um, I, I rounded up the sheep, you know, and the second book I took them out into the hills to graze, and I got to the end of the, third, the second book, and I was just starting the third book, and I looked around, and all those fucking sheep were just gone. <laughs> they had just scattered in every direction, you know? And I'm going, how the hell am I going to get them all rounded up, let alone get them back down again by the end of this third book? And, of course, I wound up writing a third book that, that killed several buyers. Um, they, they died just trying to get it out of the store. It was gigantic. It was so big it could not be a single paperback. That's so, true, by the way? Could they, have, could they publish it as a single now? Or is that was I, no, one? I don't believe so. It was, it, the, manuscript, the manuscript for Two Green Angel Tower, which was the last book of these, was um, – was actually that high in typing paper. It was 16, 1700 pages, um, and 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 not big print either. I'm embarrassed to say, but the, the the instructive point here is just that it's that the the hard part, the the part that really takes work is as you're watching the sheep start to wander. What Andrew's talking about is where you start saying, okay, hang on, I'm afraid if that sheep gets too far away, then that little bastard is just gone. That's it. He's going to be somebody else's lamb dinner, you know, because I got to get this sucker done. And but the other thing, and I don't know if you've experienced this, either of you, but this is also very difficult, is that as you find those other things you want to concentrate and, and, and focus on a little bit that you didn't know about when you started, that you also have to find a way to pull those into the main line of the story or otherwise they're pure, pure digression. Mm -hmm. I mean, or a spinoff novel. Or a spin. I mean, I guess I wanted to get everything back in the narrative. But yeah, I mean, I had that. That's what happened to me. Like, all my characters, I was like, 
big ending, book two, big epic, you know, the big epic scene, and everybody goes, and everybody runs off in different directions. And at some point in book three, I was like, oh my god, everybody ran in. There's no cell phones. Yeah. Like, like, how the hell's everybody gonna get back together? No airports. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. And you know, I mean, I had a little neat little trick in book one where I stole the, the you know, old Fantastic Four, the flare, where everybody would. Right, 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 I right. can't pull that off because the villain would know where they are. Yeah. So it was, you know. It was now, I literally got into a situation in the third book when I had been planning the ending of the Dragonbone chair books, and I knew what the ending was going to be. But when I was planning it, there only had to be like four or five people involved. And by the time I actually got there, I had like 57 characters that I had to all get together in some shape, or they didn't literally all have to physically be there, but they had to be going through some kind of climactic moment at the same time. They had to be involved in the plot in some crucial other portion of the plot and they all had to come together and at that the same to time. Too, right? That's the Miranese Knot thing. Like he the, he took two books to he had he needed all the characters to be in one location at one time. And that's why the and he claims that's why it took so long for him to write the last few. We'll see if he can speed it up. But just getting you know and it's hard. Like yeah in medieval in 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 that era, why does everybody end up needing to show up at the same time or place anywhere near anyone. Yeah. You know? That's why I created magic horses. <laughs> and they run really fast. <laughs> it's my black box black box magic. Yes. The writer's best friend. Mm-hmm. Please. That's you. Yeah, uh, so the talking about the scale of epic fantasy fiction. Stand up and shout. Oh. Talking about the scale of epic fantasy fiction as I guess as if it's a given. But what I guess my question is what is as sort of elemental, what makes epic fantasy so big and long? Like, what, what is the functionality of it? <laughs> well, it's pro- primarily the events themselves. One of the things I think that we like about epic fantasy, and we were talking about a little bit earlier, is that these are, tr- you know, oftentimes these are truly world-shaking events, and they are not going to be simply handled. You know, it's it's the opposite of, say, like a James Bond novel, where basically once Bond, you know, Bond has to get into one door and he has to go down a certain corridor. And yes, he has to fight a bunch of people in neoprene. You know, that's a given. But once he's down that corridor, he has to, you know, go down there and then get captured by the villain, which they seem to plan in ahead of time. And then the villain has to reveal to him where the super secret tape is actually, you know, in the guy's back pocket that, that will actually undo the missile countdown or whatever the hell it is. But it's all focused down on one line where one person can solve it. Whereas in an epic, generally, and I don't want to speak for you guys, but I mean, I, generally in my epic, certainly, there's a lot of things that have to come together for those things to get solved. And that in and of itself means it makes it epic. No one character or even one small group of characters can carry the whole thing off. Yeah, I, I, mean, I, I, I would fall into the same camp. I have a smaller pool of characters, but they all are integral to the various, you know, and I, I really, I didn't have one character that was the standout main character. I literally had all, the four characters I started with all got pretty much equal airtime. Then when it expanded to six, they all just about got equal airtime and they all had important things they needed to do as a part of the overall picture of what had happened in this world and how did they make it right again. And the, the, the fun thing about superheroes, and, I, and like now that I think about it, I'm so glad. I mean, because I, I, you know, like there was no army marching towards a battlefield that I needed to time everything on, right? And like, thank God for that, because that, that would have been the death of me. But like, you know, that, that's, you know, that, and I think that's, but in terms of like what makes it the scale, yeah, I mean, I think there's, it, it, yeah, the, there's a confluence of events and, 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 the, and the ramifications are huge and, if the char- and the characters are, are forced to take care of it. I mean, it can be as small as a group. I mean, the nice thing about superheroes is, you know, Marvel. It's I can I can steal from forty years of, of narrative cheats on that, right? Like like look at the Avengers, right? So the end of the Avengers movie. That's exactly they, they do exi- like that's why Joss is super smart, right? Like he he gets it. Like there's a big battle, everybody's fighting, but there's five guys, right? And New York hangs in the balance, but there's five guys, and they're fighting a bazillion aliens and a giant floating whatchamacallit, and yet it's still five guys, and somehow they pulled that off and made it work, and that that. That's the trick that I get to pull because I have superheroes, right? Like I can have big things happen, but the characters can scale up because their powers can scale up. So I don't need the army to show up. Um, I don't know if you have an army in yours. I know you had an army in yours. Oh, he's got armies. And and you know and and like I just glad you know that's the one thing I, I don't know if I could handle that. Like to get the general out there and the guys. There's a hundred thousand people on the field and there's 
you know, the battle's happening and who's doing what and who's going to die. Like, I, I, don't, I, don't, I know. But it's actually, just very quickly, I mean, one of the things that, I'll pick one that most of us started on. Now, that may not be as true as it used to be, but most of us started with The Lord of the Rings, or at least, you know, we, we read it at some point. Um, and if you look at The Lord of the Rings, now, what's interesting about it is that he takes these characters who are comparatively very depowered, they're weak, they're very human, um, and puts them in the most crucial situation. But what Tolkien himself refers to time and time again is that it's not going to work for the, the hobbits, for Sam and, and Frodo, eventually, who's it, who it comes down to. They are not going to be able to fulfill their quest if everybody else just stands around. So then you bring in the other best friend of the epic writer, which is that you hope that the readers get invested in more than just your very main characters. So all of a sudden, at the end of the story, we're not just, obviously we're worried about Sam and Frodo, but meanwhile, all the other characters have had to go through many permutations of staying alive and keeping hope alive and not allowing Sauron to change his focus. And at the very end, the last thing that you're thinking before um, the actual finish of the book is that, oh no, Pippin's gonna be dead, right? Because he's out in front of the Black Gate with all the other characters fighting to distract Sauron in a hopeless battle, which has all that heart tug to it. But, you know, you care about Pippin, even though he's a little dumb shit. And, I mean, come on, he is. Everybody knows it. You know, we love him, but he's a, I would never take him on an adventure. Oh my God. But, that, that's what you're, so, so even though, they, they may not, die, everybody may not die in front of the Black Eight. The characters that you care about, other than the main, the two main characters at this point, are out there. Pippin is out there, Gandalf is out there, Aragorn is out there, and they're all in danger of dying, but they're also doing something critical. So it's, the epic thing comes from, as, as Andrew said, the confluence of events, the things coming together that all have to work. And in that sense, it's, it's a wonderful, fun MacGuffin to write as well, because you have to make this Rube Goldberg device where everything happens without seeming like you've just pulled it out of your ass and said, make it so. But you actually explained how all these came to be and how they almost didn't happen. I'll just throw one thing out there. What's going to be really, really interesting is to watch. If you really want, I think what's going to be very informative is watching Jackson's Hobbit trilogy. Because the Hobbit really fought, like he, he didn't, I mean, he invented the form and the Hobbit's before he invented the form, right? So there's a lot of stuff in the Hobbit, like the main character falls asleep during the big battle. And obviously that's yeah. going to be shown. Right? And he's also pulling a lot of stuff from the backstory that's going to be woven in. And the question is going to be, can they weave it in a way to create those kind of... Can you, can you take stuff that's sort of from the, from the backstory that, that you know, you're talking about moving off the main stage? Mm -hmm. And can he weave it in in a way that's going to be compelling for an audience? Right. And you know, this is the guy who made that Lord of the Rings. He's also the guy who made King Kong, which did not give the epic feel to that story that it needed to be updated properly. So it's going to be really interesting to see. I have a mm -hmm. good feeling about it because I think he loves the material. But it'll be informative either way, whether he does it successfully or not. How could you not like trapeze tyrannosaurs, though? That was like, <laughs> you know, it's like, if nothing else, I would watch oh, it just beautiful. to watch the trapeze tyrannosaurs. It's a lovely travelogue, I'll yeah. say that. <laughs> he also made, what was the one? Heavenly Creatures. Yeah, that's yeah. a good movie. His first good film, movie. which yeah. was not epic, not epic. Yeah. Yeah. at all, but it was beautiful. Kate Winslet's first movie. Yeah. yeah. When you guys have uh, so many characters in a story, uh, how do you get into that particular character when you sit down to write one of like 10 or 50? How do you get into writing that particular character? I dress in costumes. <laughs> um, no, I'm kidding. I, you know, for me, I, I don't know how I do it exactly. I'm still learning. I, I mean, I've just finished my fourth novel a couple months ago. Um, so I'm still learning how I do it, but a lot of, everything that I'm doing is very character driven for me. Um, and I'm, I'm really just kind of, you know, some of the premise of, of my series starts with the where were you on 9-11 on sort of idea, or where were you the day Kennedy was shot. I mean, that there are these epic moments in history where we remember where we were when those things happened, if we were alive during that time. And I wanted to follow four people, later six, um, through the events of watching their world's largest, most important city destroyed while they tried to solve who did it and why. Um, and so the characters themselves just, when I, when I sit down and type Rudolfo, I just know his voice. I just know who he is. And I mean, I could do an interview with Rudolfo and be able to ask him and answer his questions. Same with Patronus, same with Jin Lee Tam. They're all different people, but, and they, but they feel real in my head. That's the part that, where they, they don't let me come out to these things very often. But, <laughs> um, but they feel real enough to me that when I slide into that chair, 
that character is that character. I mean, to the point where I had to cut stuff uh, from Lamentation because Patronus rambled like an old man. Well, he is an old man. Um, and we had to trim some things back in the very, you know, when, the, when it was first passed through my agent um, because he rambled like an old man. I don't know how or why it happened, but for whatever reason, those characters seem to have a thread, seem to have a voice, seem to have a place for me to follow them. And I just kind of ran with it. If you're not interested in writing the character, mm -hmm. then the reader's not going to be interested in reading them. So one of the very best ways of, of making sure that you know the character is that when you get to that character's voice, you're going, ooh, cool, it's a chance to do that character. And not necessarily just their voice, but I mean what they do, yeah. how they affect people around them. You know, some of them are funny, some of them are terrifying, you know. But, but any character... Um, if you're invested in them properly as a writer, uh, I'm, I'm assuming that you're going to go, oh, cool, now it's my chance to go back and do this woman again or, or whatever. Well, so, what we're so talking about is a problem of all fiction, uh, which carries over in different ways into, into epic fantasy. But you've, uh, Ray, Ray McCarver has the same problem right. as Tolkien. I, I mean, I have a, s a quick solution for you. you have, there's one question you have to ask yourself for every character. Or this is what I do. I'll say this isn't universal. What do they want? What do they want? Yep. Not, not, what do they, not what do they want externally? Not what do they want? What do they? Not what they're saying. What they want? What do they want internally? And you have to. If, they, if you don't. And with every time, I guarantee for me anyway. If 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 I don't, if I'm not enjoying the character, I haven't answered that question properly. And I go back and I write it over and I think about it again and again and again. And when I know what they want, what they're going to go after, despite what the narrative puts in their way, despite what goes on, then I have an interesting character. And and almost any character, if you screw them down in the ground enough and say, what do you want, what do you want, what do you want? At some point you will wake up and figure out what they want and then they'll be interesting to write. And I, I actually do almost exactly the same thing you do. Um, what does my character care about? And then I ask myself, what are they the most afraid of? And then I make them face what they're the most afraid of in order to achieve what they care about. Um, and then, ideally, by the time I get to the next book, I take what it is they cared most about achieving and give them something horribly new to be afraid of um, to make them face that and work and work forward. So, I, I will add one more thing, which it may uh, strike some people as being breathtakingly cynical. Um, but I actually, one of the things when I'm creating characters, especially in these big epics where you got zillions of characters to keep up with, um, there is actually it's one of the few times that I ever think about an audience. Because honestly, most of the time, no offense, all the kind people who, who buy my books and allow me to continue on with the Caligulian lifestyle I've become accustomed to. <laughs> but um, I, I can't imagine an audience in my head. I can't imagine uh, readers in my head. All I can really think of is myself and the people that I know, and especially me. I try to write a book that I would like. But so one of the things that I do when I'm coming up with characters is I just say, will the, will the reader, and this is one of the few times I think of a reader as an objective other, will the reader remember who this character is the next time they show up? So whatever they, and I agree with, with Andrew and Ken on this. I mean, yes, what they want, their motivation, their internal core is crucial because that's what makes them a useful part of the story. But I also have to think, I'm throwing a lot of characters at people. What about this character is going to stand out that they will remember them? And, and Ken said jokingly, you know, something like, well, I rely on costumes. And, you know, other people have accused me of relying on, on missing body parts, you know, um, you know, because I've got various <laughs> characters missing hands and eyes and blah, 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 you know, which does make them identifiable. But what I do try to do is come up, is to think something about this person that somebody will immediately recognize, whether it's the name, the way of talking, you know, something that the next time that character appears so that they feel a little familiar because otherwise sometimes a character can appear two or three times with people thinking it's the diff a different character. You know, with these big epics, they can be going, oh wait, I thought that was the such, oh shit, I've been reading it for, you know, two days thinking that was that guy, but it's not, it's this guy. So. Again, trying to make something iconic with each minor character that you're giving. I'm not talking about the spirit carriers, but anybody that's g being given some kind of an important role in any, you know, which is maybe 30, 40 characters in the course of a book. They have to be memorable in some way. Well, that's not cynical, it's, uh, but it's technical. Well, I mean, in the sense of yeah. actually that's the one yeah. time I think about an outside yeah. source, you know, is I think if I'm a reader and I'm reading this god-awful long thing, what, what, how, what do I need? So in a sense, I'm spoon-feeding them more than I normally would again. Yeah. Well, I'm just, I'm just remembering what Gene Wolfe once said, uh, his advice, how, how do you write a great book? And he said, 
you just try to put something interesting on every page. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> absolutely. I was thinking about what you were saying about, uh, which I thought was quite eloquent, about how you get all these strands together and you get even where you care about, you know, at the, at the climax, you, you care about a character. And I was saying not an epic fantasy, but I was thinking of um, The Killer Angels, the book about Gettysburg. Right. Which they did the same thing. You've got all these different people in these all these different situations and problems, and it all comes down to this one dude trying to hold a hilltop. Right. You know. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Know. And that's actually the best historical writers. That's any of you out there interested in in writing fiction um, beyond just entertaining yourselves. If you want to be a good fiction writer, I strongly suggest you read a lot of nonfiction, especially history especially science, but for just the reason Terry's talking about, because the best history writers know this lesson very well, and they will build their story out of, Barbara Tuckman is a big favorite of mine, and she goes back and finds letters by people in the 14th century that, that in, in a paragraph and a half tells you who that person is, and for the rest of those hundreds of pages, you really want to know, even though this person's been dead for 600 years, you know they ain't still around, they didn't make it past the, you know, the, the 14th century, but but you, you care. You care about them because she or any good writer has found that thing that invests you. And that's that's it. That's the core. It can be a tiny moment, right? I mean, it can, yeah. be, a, it can yeah. be a really little thing. Yeah. If it's, you're lucky. <laughs> the, the, the current Hollywood thing, by the way, I, was, I hadn't heard this expression before, but the, the big thing in Hollywood right now, for instance, is the save the cat moment. Um, based on a very well-known screenwriting book. And the Save the Cat moment is about what happens in the first 10 or 15 pages. Well, it's supposed to happen in the first 5 to 10 pages of the screenplay where the protagonist, no matter what kind of a badass he or she may be or whatever, actually does something kind so that the audience goes, oh, secretly, they're good. You know, I care about this person. And again, it sounds very cynical, but what they've got their hands on there is a mechanical, mechanistic version of investing you in the character. That there's something there that makes you go, oh, 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 you know, and from then on, they mean something. Right. Or they think there's going to be a, a twist or a turn. Because right. also, I think one thing fiction is about is, is like you're always playing tricks. You know, it's like you say you don't, you don't really know um, who the character, you know, yeah. it, it's, it, a lot of it's uh, a dog and pony show. It's uh, card tricks. Well, especially yeah. genre fiction because we've got an audience that's read so much of, you know, most of our readers have read hundreds of other books like this and they're already thinking that they know where you're going. So that's one of the fun parts, actually. Do you guys enjoy that too? What, take, take twisting what you think the expectations is. Playing with the audience's expectation. Yeah, I think you have to do that mm -hmm. a little bit. I mean, I mean, it's it's not a, it's a, it can be a, I've I've seen it to getting to the point now where certain where people are making choices specifically for that, and I think you can actually undercut a lot of that with character choice rather than narrative twist. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know. I mean, I you know I just don't like I saw somebody like it's like oh I know they're gonna think that so you know it's like becomes one of those games like I knew you thought I was gonna do that so I did this and I knew you thought I was gonna do that so I did this instead and it's and like. And it can get a little crazy. And that's why you shouldn't read too much genre fiction. <laughs> <laughs> seriously, seriously. I think we got a question over there. I don't know about who we right. Yeah. I've called on you up there, and there you have to go there. No, I'm kidding. Go ahead. <laughs> well, it's you know, interesting what you just say about people twisting the narrative to try to keep it fresh. After George R. R. Martin, it's a little harder to do now that he's done everything, like the main character, subversive, all these things. It almost gets to the point, the more fantasy you read, the more modern it gets. It feels almost like the authors have gone so far in trying to twist the narrative that the characters are making deliberately bad choices that you, the reader, know are bad choices. And it's just like, why are you doing these stupid things? Yes, I get that the expectation is you're going to do the right thing, but that doesn't mean you have to be an idiot the whole way. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, no, it, it is... And, and, and this is actually something we could have an entire panel discussion about for like two hours because this is stuff that I literally think about every day. Um, because we do, we live in a postmodern world. Almost everybody that we're writing for has not only read dozens of these kinds of stories before, but they've seen things on television, on film. They are literally submerged in an ocean of stories. There's a tropes website now, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Exactly. You can't win that battle. I mean, if you fight it, you're going to lose it. No, and so ultimately, you have to walk a line, and you, you find both that ways to subvert expectations, but then 
you know, obviously there's there can be a postmodern backlash where you subvert expectation by giving in to expectation right. too, you know. But the most, and that's where it comes back to being a real writer. If you're a real writer, if you write it convincingly, if you make that believable, then all of a sudden all the games playing falls to the side because the audience goes, yeah, I knew he was going to do that, or I knew she was going to do that, but by God, it's amazing. You know, that was worth it, you know, or whatever. And, 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 and ultimately, right, you, you have to write it. I mean, like, you can, if you start playing games, like, that's what I learned through these three books, right? It's like you start down the road, and you're like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. And it's like, what am I going to do? It's like, you're going to sit, you're going to write it, and then you're going to worry about it when you're done, <laughs> right? It's like, because some days you're not going to win that battle. And the big freeing moment for me was... Um, the big moment that freed me and really changed the way I write is that th th I had a day, I had a couple days where the, I thought I was writing the best thing I'd ever written and it was terrible on re-examination and I thought I was writing the worst thing I'd ever written and it was <laughs> awesome. And once I realized I had no idea what I was doing in the moment, I just sat there and wrote it. Mm -hmm. And like, because it's the editing where you're going to figure it all out. And then that, and that just frees you from that, from sitting there worrying about whether you've got it right or doubled up or whatever. You're going to go back and read, if you're smart, you're going to go back and read it again. So, you know, that's when you can fix stuff. So, Ken, when did you learn that key lesson of actually just keep writing, don't try to make it perfect? I still haven't learned <laughs> it. I, um, I just finished Requiem. It's my fourth novel ever. My first novel was Lamentations, first novel I ever even, you know, first novel I ever finished. So um, I'm on my fourth novel, so I know I'm, I feel very much like I'm still a rookie learning this. Um, and I, you know, I, I don't, I have no, I know that I, my vote doesn't count. <laughs> um, Lamentation was a piece of shit. I knew it was the worst book that anybody had ever attempted to write when I wrote it. I knew that nobody would ever want to read it. And when the agent said, oh, I love this book, could I please represent you? I knew that she was a crackhead. Um, <laughs> and, and, and I only began to suspect things might be okay when Tor said, oh, this is a five book series, we'll take all five. Um, then I began to realize that I, my vote just does not count. I have no sense of, of when I when I my writing is pretty much the same whether I think it sucks or whether I think it's going okay. I pretty much never think it's brilliant, <laughs> um, and I just you know I just I I live with the voices in my head and they may that I may sit at my keyboard and shake uh, with the rage that I'm feeling over how bad this feels, but. You know, I have people in my life, like my wife, who will say, go write. Don't worry about it. It doesn't need to be good. You, It'll be good even if you think it's crap it's going to be. Just go write it. And <clears throat> so I'm still learning it. You know? well, and, and there, but there's also, there's also, and this is, again, I'm directing this mostly at people who are interested in writing themselves. One of the biggest problems that I see for, for beginner writers is that they get a project, whatever it is. You know, they start it, and then... Then when they come back to it, they go, oh, God, this is crap. I, I'm better now. And they start it again. Yeah. And you get this chambered Nautilus effect where they just keep <laughs> spiraling around the beginning, trying to make it ever more perfect, mm -hmm. instead of just writing the whole damn thing and making all the mistakes, but learning how to write the middle and the ending, which is at least as important as the beginning. You know, and then go back and fix it. But too many people get hung up on this idea of like, oh, I'm better now than I was when I started this. Well. I hope so. We all hope we're better at the end of each book than we were before we started. But you have to finish the book before anybody else can find out about it. I think part of what helped me there was that I started in short fiction and broke in kind of that old-fashioned through the magazines way. So I learned to finish short fiction in high school. Um, so I didn't have a trouble. I didn't have any problems finishing a short story by the time I came back to writing as an adult. Novels scared the fuck out of me. I'd not written anything longer than 15,000 words, and everybody said, it's time to write a novel. You want to write into the future? Go write a novel. Go write a Jim Mintz. Here's my card. Go write a novel. Um, I'm, not, I'm, a, I'm a short story writer. I want to be Howard Waldrop. I want to eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and fish. Um, I, that's what I want to do. Uh, Howard eats peanut butter and fish sandwiches? Well, I don't know if he puts the fish on the peanut butter, but oh. he fishes. I know he, he fishes. Yeah, he and fishes. Then he makes peanut butter and jelly sandwiches to go with it. Yeah, it's the juxtaposition yeah. that but alarms that, me. We should ask him. Oh, yeah, but he, uh, but he has. Yeah, my wife knows him. Yeah, and yeah. Um, but I, you know, I, I never saw myself writing novels. So, but but because I learned to finish and I learned to say this is as good as it's going to be right now. I mean, that's a huge thing to learn. Be able to say I'm done with this because yeah, everything you write. Hopefully, you're practicing your craft and you're getting better and better. You could spend your entire career not having a career by going back and working the same five, first five chapters, which is what I would have done. I would have bailed on my book at five chapters or gone back and tried to redo them and redo them if I hadn't had a dare from Jay Lake to go finish a novel. Jay and my wife, Jen, took me out, pelted me with tater tots, said, go write this book. You have six and a half weeks, go. 
And yeah, yeah I mean, I, and I, you know, I mean, Tad knows. I, I had a whole. I tried to be a writer. I, I mean, I even got into Clarion West. Didn't end up going because I got into games. But like, it, and I just stopped. And then, and and, and I've written a lot of short stories and, and done a lot of work. And then there was a period at which, it, when I came back to it again, I just took a different point of view of getting it done. I also outlined, which I hadn't done before. Now that's not for everybody, but for me, that's what what it took. And then when I knew where I was going. Uh, you know, and I look book one. I rewrote every I, I rewrote every chapter three times before I went on to the next one. It was the most ridiculous way to write a book, but I got it done and it and it was finished. And you know that was what it took, right? And that's when anybody asks me, "What does it take to be a writer?" It's like you got to finish a bu- finish a book. I still want to know why nobody pelted me with tater tots. <laughs> We've actually arranged a special yeah. treat for you, it's funny Mr. You should Williams. Mention that because <laughs> Bring him on, baby. Bring him on. You started too early, man. You I clearly. Started, no, they had tater tots. I mean, come no, on. No, I'm not that, that old. No, no. That happens no. after I mean, the head you. shaving. That's after the head shaving. Jesus. Yeah, they, were, they were made of actual potatoes back then. No, but the, uh, but the, but, but the truth, I mean, you know. Like, so cause was you, I. Because you, 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 you finished your book early on. Nobody I see. So I didn't. So basically, my whole mistake, Deb. Apparently that I, I'm owed a lot of tater tots. <laughs> I just wanted to point this out to you, okay? Thanks, sweetie. They were oh, okay. oh, even better. Yeah. Oh, jeez. I okay. didn't have those back. <laughs> I will take four more questions. Four. Not from one person. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Where do you get your ideas? What's your middle name? I mean, this is fascinating. Because, I mean, we can uh, find things to talk about, but if you guys have any questions. Yeah. Please. Interstitial in what sense? Uh, cross-genre. Oh, okay. So. I seem to be in trouble for that. Um, you know, because my stuff's being marketed as epic fantasy, but I, I think it's science fiction, post-apocalyptic stuff. But, I mean, I, I, I know that for me, I was really wanting to do something that I, I didn't think I'd read anywhere before, so I wanted to throw everything but the kitchen sink into it and see what happened. Um, I, I, think other, I think a lot of writers are trying to move in those directions, too, but... I can't speak to anybody specifically. I know for me, though, it was an intentional choice to to do this bizarre blend of, of science fiction dressed up as fantasy and see if I could pull it off. There, there's definitely, especially these days, um, there has been an increasing pressure. Now, everything, I have to preface this by saying, all of this is now changing because of the rise of electric electronic uh, fiction. Um, and uh, the internet and things like that. So it's very hard to, to talk about what will be. But definitely the last 20 years has been about the rise of narrowcast marketing. And part of that, if you stop and think about it, you know, most of us in this room are all readers of science fiction and fantasy. So even the people you haven't read, if somebody mentions a book or gives you a sentence about it or something, you could immediately kind of go, oh, it's sort of like this, or it's a little bit like this, I might like that, or oh, it doesn't really sound like my thing. But remember, most of the people who are mar- not just you know, buying the books from you, but marketing the books, this is more crucial, the publishing people, not your editors, but all the people marketing the books, They don't read these, most of them. They don't know. And so there's always a pressure to try and simplify the the marketing chain. So they're not going out, going up to every Joe on the street saying, hey, you might like this book. They want to find the people buy books exactly like that and tell them this is another book exactly like all the – in fact, that's what genre is. You know, if you like Westerns, trust me, this is a Western. It has has horses, you know, or whatever it might be. But, of course – that isn't really how writers work, um, at least not the real writers that I know, at least not people like Ken and Andrew and myself and Terry, who I know all of us have kind of been all over the shop with things. And so it's a constant battle. It's a battle. The marketing people, the publishers want to make it easy to send it directly to that niche of buyers out there who already buy that kind of stuff. And we writers want to write the ideas that seize us, and they're not always quite that narrowly defined. So. Um, there will be interstitial stuff always, but there will also be, at least until we find out what the next type of publishing is going to be, there will be pressure pushing back to make sure that it's easily marketable. Yes. Steampunk's really weird this way because, I mean, like normally genre, you know, one of the easy ways is genre is usually defined by some kind of hit that, that came and defined the space and then pushed it out. And steampunk's really weird because it doesn't have that defining hit. I mean, it, there's nothing out there. There's no big movie. There's no really major, major 
uh, major book that took the country by storm. That's so true. I never thought of yeah, that. so it's really weird. So you were getting a lot of crossover. You know, the chronopunk, the the clock punk. Like it's just like it, the whole idea of like historical. I mean, so it's become the, it's become kind of the 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 the, the catch all genre because people can like I'm writing Roman alternate history. You know, it's like you and you have a pretty good swath. You start. I mean, you can really go 1860 to 1920 and be purely steampunk anyway, or 1840 really. So. So, um, you know, it, it, that, that's something that's happening. But, like, you know, if a big genre hit comes along, it's going it to, you know, it would change the way that people wrote steampunk and the way it was marketed. Yeah. Another thing I think is happening is you look at uh, writers like uh, Light Shaban or um, um, what's his name? The guy that just won the um, National Book Award. Uh, or no? The Dominican Jonathan, guy. Oh, oh, oh. oh uh, Oscar, um, Juno Diaz? Juno Diaz, or you look at Jonathan Lethem. Uh, another thing I think that's happening is that uh, the genres are maturing, and so they begin to, they begin to shatter. We're almost you know. respectable. And, um, <laughs> and that's a good thing. Uh, we saw that happen with rock and roll. You know, we saw it, it move from I want to hold your hand to Sgt. Pepper, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, th- but all those things kind of happen together. And there are opportunities, but they're also... They get weird. They make it hard. <laughs> Y'all shut up. Rena's here. Our party is over. Okay. Our party. All right. Part of the party. Okay. Uh, there will be no more questions from anybody. So put your hands <laughs> down. And uh, let's go have another drink and free uh, a bar child. Bar is closed, but the authors have the expression willing to. Oh yeah, they have to sign books. Mm-hmm. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.